Even if you haven't been there, most people love Ireland. It has this reputation for being warm, welcoming, safe. A place where the people are friendly and the pubs are jovial, the landscape serene. But like every country, Ireland has its share of crime and incredibly dark secrets. For dozens of years, a steady stream of women has been getting abducted, raped, and killed. And a lot of it seems to be centered around one specific place, a mountain range just a few miles away from Dublin. The pattern of these disappearances is disturbing in its own right. But when you begin to look at the granular details and how abruptly some of these women seem to vanish into thin air, it becomes downright terrifying. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. On this show, I'm going to take you around the world to look at 15 culture-defining crimes from 15 different countries. Today, we're heading to Ireland, more specifically an area known as the Vanishing Triangle, an area on the eastern part of the island roughly represented by the boundaries of the province of Leinster, It was here where a macabre pattern of deaths and disappearances began to happen with shocking regularity, enough so that many people to this day suspect it's the work of a single killer. All of that is coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Before we get into today's story, I want to clarify that it's a little different because we're not necessarily talking about a specific crime or person, but a place. A place where, over the past 40 years, a shocking number of women have either disappeared or been found dead. At the heart of this region is the Wicklow Mountains, which lie about an hour outside of Dublin. Now, these mountains are stunning. One of the most scenic spots in the already breathtaking country of Ireland. There's waterfalls, wildlife, and greenery as far as the eye can see. One look and your first thought will be paradise. And for the most part, it is. People go here to take walks, have picnics, and disconnect from the urban bustle. But the mountains are also dense blanketed by trees and covering a massive swath of land filled with bogs, marshes, and fields, a place that is nearly impossible to search or investigate. 
And over the past 40-some years, they've begun to cultivate a terrible history, one so violent and unsettling that it's beginning to look less and less like a coincidence that so many terrible things occur there. It's gotten so bad that the mountains and their surrounding towns have taken on a name, the Vanishing Triangle. It's a region where women seem to evaporate into thin air. Some of these mysteries have been solved, and some remain as baffling as ever. It all starts in the late 70s, 1979 to be more specific. Right before Christmas, a 23-year-old woman named Phyllis Murphy goes missing. At 6.30 p.m., she's seen standing at a bus stop. Then, all of a sudden, she's gone. Her body's found almost a month later in a pine forest up in the Wicklow Mountains. This opens a case that lasts for 20 years until police are ultimately able to trace DNA found on her body to a married father of five who'd been living a quiet life. But even though this particular case has closure, it's the beginning of an incredibly disturbing pattern. Eight years later, in the summer of 1987, 27-year-old Antoinette Smith goes missing after a concert outside of Dublin. Seven months later, her body was found in a peat bog in the Wicklow Mountains with two plastic bags tied around her head. No real leads are ever found, and the case remains unsolved to this day. Same with 29-year-old Patrice Doherty, who disappears just before Christmas in 1991. Her body's found six months later, only about a kilometer away from where Antoinette's body was discovered. And sure, anyone looking closely might have seen a pattern emerging. But the connection doesn't grab public's interest at large. That is, until one woman's disappearance puts the country in a frenzy. Her name is Annie McCarrick, and she's 27 years old. Annie's from Long Island, but had fallen in love with Ireland as a college student and decided to move back and start a teaching career in January of 1993. She lives in a suburb of Dublin called Sandymount, which at the time is one of the safest places to live in the city. She waitresses at a local cafe a few days a week, and between the people she waits on and the friends she's made on her own, Annie's extremely social. She's also striking, one of those people whose features are so distinct you just can't help but notice them. At any rate, one of her favorite places to spend an afternoon off is this cute little town called Enniscary, which is in the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains. So on Friday, March 26, Annie tells her two roommates that she plans on going to Enniscary for the afternoon. But before she leaves, she runs some errands. First, she goes to the bank, then to the supermarket. Afterwards, she calls a friend and invites her along on her excursion, but the friend can't make it. This brief, seemingly meaningless phone call is the last time that anyone hears from her. The next day, Saturday, Annie doesn't come into work, nor is she home when friends of hers show up at her place for dinner. And when her roommates come back from the weekend on Sunday, she's still nowhere to be found. But her roommates noticed the groceries she bought Friday morning in a bag propped against the wall. They were left out, even the milk and cheese, which is obviously strange. It looks like Annie was in a big hurry to leave that afternoon. The roommates decide to call Annie's mom in New York, who immediately gets on a plane and flies to Dublin. 
When she gets there, she reports Annie missing to the police. But it's already been almost four days since the last time anyone heard from her. Annie doesn't have a cell phone. There aren't any security cameras inside any of the stores or out on the street, except for one in the bank. They find a tape of Annie there from Friday morning, and they're able to determine from a couple of eyewitnesses that Annie did catch the bus to Enniscary just before four in the afternoon. But after that, they hit a dead end. Hardly anyone in Enniscary can say they saw her once she got there, except for one woman, a cafe worker, who tells a policeman that she swears she saw Annie come in around five o'clock with a man who had a square face. But her statement gets lost and no one ever follows up on it, which, if you think about it, is a little weird. After all, this is becoming a huge story in Ireland. A missing American gone without a trace, her parents literally going door to door. It's all over the news. So it's bizarre to think that this kind of lead would just fall by the wayside. But it does. And for a time, investigators are at a loss. That is until a doorman at a pub called Johnny Fox's comes forward. The pub is in a town called Glencullen, three miles away from Enniscary, and basically in the Wicklow Mountains themselves. The doorman says that he saw Annie come in Friday night, the last day she was heard from, sometime after 8.30. He's positive it's her because he spoke to her directly. Apparently, Annie walked in without paying the cover charge, and when the doorman asked her to pay, a man standing behind her in line offered to pay her way instead. According to the doorman, it didn't seem like the two were together, but he can't be sure. He says the guy was in his late 20s, had brown hair cut really short, almost like military style, and he was wearing a green waxed jacket. But it's a total mystery who this guy is. Nobody comes forward to say that they know him, and nobody besides the doorman claims to have seen him there that night. And from what Annie's mom will say later, the Irish police are just at a loss to explain what happened to Annie. Now, it's easy to sit back and say this was shoddy police work, but in their defense, they really didn't have much to work with. There's nobody, nobody else at the pub saw them that night, and searches for Annie around the pub and inside a nearby forest turn up nothing. In fact, it's alarming how little there is to go off of, like she evaporated before the country's very eyes. So, unsurprisingly, Annie's case just goes cold. However, there is a postscript to this story, even though the threads are a little thin. Years later, detectives hear a story from a quote-unquote reliable source that the mystery man at the pub was actually a hitman for the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. He had a bit too much to drink, started to flirt with Annie, and then when he realized he said a little too much about himself, offered her a ride home. But instead of driving her to Dublin, he took her in the opposite direction, into the mountains, where he strangled her and buried her in the dark of night. When the detectives hear this story, they apparently can't even bring this guy in for questioning because he's been banished by the IRA for being a child molester, and he's fled to the U.S. So it's just another dead end. Another missing woman vanishing into the wilderness. But Annie's disappearance marks a tragic turning point in the history of the vanishing triangle. 
suddenly the disappearances start happening at a much faster rate. Over the next year and a half, three more women disappear in the same bizarrely inexplicable way. And it's enough that the investigators and the public at large can no longer ignore the sinister nature of the Wicklow Mountains themselves. Coming up, three more women disappear without a trace. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results, go deeper inside four affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with Party Fowls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In July of 1993, four months after Annie's disappearance, another woman goes missing near Dublin. Her name is Eva Brennan, and she's 39 years old. She leaves her parents' house in a suburb called Terranure, walks home to her apartment, and is never seen again. Six months after that, another woman, 22-year-old Imelda Keenan, goes missing in the city of Waterford, which is about a two-hour's drive south from Dublin. She's last seen in the middle of the day and on her way to the post office. But after someone sees her cross the street, it's like she vanishes into thin air. Now, I should say that the police didn't really give either of these cases a ton of attention. Nothing like what they did with Annie. And in the case of Eva, they didn't think anything suspicious had happened. It took three months for them to even begin investigating her disappearance. Once they found out Eva had a history of depression, they assumed she ended her life. And yet, her body has never turned up anywhere. But in the fall of 1995, another woman goes missing. And this time, it leads somewhere. On the night of November 9, 1995, a 21-year-old named Jojo Dullard is hitchhiking home from Dublin. She had gotten stuck there after a long day of drinking and hanging out with friends and had missed her 6 o'clock bus. So she takes a 9 o'clock that will at least take her part of the way home. For the rest of the trip, she'll have to hitchhike. Not exactly safe, but she's hitched plenty of rides before. So Jojo takes the bus to this town called Nace, where she flags down a ride. But the man who picks her up doesn't take her that far, maybe like 15 minutes down the road. So she has to hitch another ride. And that one doesn't take her far either, maybe another 20 minutes. By now, she's in a town called Moon. And it's pretty late, about 11.30. Everything is closed, and she still has another hour's drive ahead of her. So feeling a little scared and nervous, she ducks into a phone booth and calls her friend Mary. 
She tells her she's having trouble getting home and that she may try to get to a friend's house about 10 miles away and just sleep there. But as she's talking, a car stops outside the phone booth. From the other end of the phone, Mary hears Jojo put down the phone. The door of the phone booth closes, and then about 30 seconds later, Jojo comes back on the line. She says she has a lift and just hangs up. The next day, Jojo doesn't come into work, and her sister reports her missing before the day is out. But for some reason, the police decide to drag their heels. They don't think there's any reason to worry. They know Jojo used to live in Dublin, so they figured she went back there. Three days go by before the investigation actually begins. And by then, it's too late. Searches of the road around Moon come up with nothing. There's no sign of her or her things anywhere. Not even the Walkman she had with her that night. So they decide to go to the news. They show her picture. They give out the details of where she was last seen. And people do start to come forward. But it's really patchy. One person says she drove by as Jojo was running to get into a car, which she thinks was a dark-colored Toyota Carina. Another person says they saw her walking down a street in the next town over, right before midnight, but this sighting is never confirmed. As for the two drivers who picked her up, they come forward too, and police quickly rule out both of them as suspects, which is strange because one of them, a farmer who we'll call Jake, gives conflicting statements. We're not sure exactly what those statements are, just that they don't match. So something is off. But it's not enough to make an arrest, and police let him go. Either way, it's not enough to keep the public at bay. Pretty soon, it's being whispered everywhere that this Jake guy is the killer. He's not just some random farmer. He's the son of a local politician, someone with deep connection, who the police are eager to protect, even though Jojo is buried somewhere on his farm. Now, keep in mind, there is still no body, no evidence, no anything to support these whispers. They are just rumors, but they are pervasive enough to make it at least seem plausible. Enough so that Jojo's family hires a private investigator to look into Jake. They want to know his background, and they want to know about his farm. The investigator eventually manages to speak to Jake and notices that he has a long cut or scratch across his face, something that looks like it could have been caused by a woman's fingernail. Now, this was six months after Jojo disappeared, so it's hard to know if a fingernail could have left a scar like that. But seeing this seems to validate all of the family's fears. As they point out years later to the press, Jojo always kept her nails long. So to them, this is obvious evidence of a cover-up. But Alan Bailey, a retired detective who worked on the Vanishing Triangle cases and who wrote a book about them, believes that Jojo was killed by a different man entirely and that he was actually a convicted sex offender who Bailey never outright names. The police got this information from a man in prison who swears up and down that he knows the killer. And the informant's story goes like this. The sex offender belongs to the traveler community, which is a nomadic ethnic group in Ireland that moves from place to place in caravans. They're a pretty insular community, one that keeps to itself and has its own traditions and ways of doing things. 
Anyway, on the night of JoJo's disappearance, this man had been driving in a convoy of two cars filled with friends and possibly family when he spots JoJo. He allegedly picks her up at the phone box and the other car is said to have taken off, leaving this man and his friend alone with JoJo. They bring JoJo back to his house in Waterford where he rapes and kills her. But according to the prison informant, at some point she escaped and ran out of the house naked and screaming. The sex offender's neighbors, which are his family, witness it. They actually see him drag her back into his house and then she's never seen again. Now, this story is just hearsay for the most part, but the offender was in the area around Moon the night of her disappearance. And police get a tip from a taxi driver who claims that he saw a woman trying to escape from a parked car just outside of Waterford that same night. She was chased by a man who pulled her back into the car, which was driven by his friend. So the police are encouraged. It finally feels like a huge break in the case. Not only that, the informant tells the police that he knows where Jojo is buried because he helped the killer get rid of the body. But that part at least turns out to be a lie. When the cops send dogs and searchers out to the spot where he says the body is, they find nothing. And then they learn that this guy couldn't have helped bury Jojo because he was actually in court that day. Still, everything else he said makes sense to them. So they arrest this sex offender and the other people who were driving around with him that night. And they do everything they can to get these people to confess. But they don't. They claim they never picked up a hitchhiker. They don't know what the police are talking about. And because the informant has already lied, the police can't press formal charges. So they have to let everyone go. As of this recording, JoJo's remains have still never been found, and her family is still looking for her. In 2019, they issued a plea to the public to find it in their hearts to come forward with information. Even in April of 2021, there's news that the police are following several new leads, 26-some-odd years after the fact. The case of Jojo Dullard continues to represent everything that connects the Vanishing Triangle cases. Missing women, baffling circumstances, paltry evidence, and terrifying conclusions. But it wasn't over. Over the next two and a half years, another three women go missing. All of them never to be seen or heard from again. Until finally... An 18-year-old girl literally vanishes in broad daylight, steps from her own front door. Coming up, a woman's brutal attack leads to a break in the mystery. Now back to the story. After JoJo disappears, three more women go missing between 1996 and late 1997. Now, to be fair, in these cases, the police are fairly sure the victims knew their killers and that they were men these women were involved with or had been in the past. But again, their bodies are never found. Nobody saw anything happen to them, and they all disappear within the same region. It's just creepy. By 1998, seven women have vanished without a trace, all within the perimeters of the Triangle. And the police are just stonewalled. 
complicating all of this is two things. At this point, Ireland still doesn't have a central bureau dedicated to missing persons, and it also doesn't have a cold case unit. Then, in 1998, another woman goes missing, just steps from her home. On July 28, 18-year-old Deirdre Jacob is walking home from running errands. At least 10 people see her on this walk, right up until she gets to her front gate. But she never makes it inside the house. Unlike JoJo's case, police start searching for Deirdre that night. And they continue until the next morning. I mean, they're looking everywhere. But there's nothing, no sign of her at all. It's assumed that someone pulled up in a car and abducted her, but nobody heard anything unusual around her house and there were no signs of a struggle at the scene. And when Deirdre's story hits the news, the public is outraged. It's like they suddenly wake up and realize that this has been going on for years. Whether the string of disappearances are connected or not, they want answers. So in September of 1998, three months after Deirdre disappears, a special task force is put together called Operation Trace. It's basically the cold case unit that Ireland should have had all along. Their mandate is to look into these eight cases known collectively as the Vanishing Triangle and completely take them apart. And given everything police know about what's been going on in the Wicklow Mountains for years now, they start to wonder if a serial killer is involved. So to get started, the detectives put together a computer database of every single sex offender and sex crime that happened in Ireland. They begin pouring over it, looking for clues that one man could be responsible for all of these women's disappearances. But there's no real candidate, nobody in the system who jumps out at them. Until about 18 months after Deirdre disappeared, when a 34-year-old married man with a clean record commits one of the most heinous crimes in recent Irish history. His name is Larry Murphy. On February 11, 2000, Larry abducts a young woman walking to her car after work. He puts her in the trunk and starts driving to the Wicklow Mountains. He stops two different times, takes her out of the trunk, and brutally rapes her. At one point, she starts to fight back. Then Larry takes a plastic bag and is in the act of suffocating her when two hunters come upon the scene and Larry flees. He's arrested the next morning and charged with abduction, sexual assault, and attempted murder. He pleads guilty to every charge. And here's the interesting part. While he's in jail, the disappearances of women basically stop, which makes police wonder, is he the serial killer they've been looking for? There are other links too. Larry once lived near Moon where Jojo disappeared, and he could easily have been driving through there that night that she was hitchhiking. The woman he abducted and almost killed was the same age as Annie McCarrick. And in 1998, the summer Deirdre vanished, Larry was working as a carpenter in Newbridge, the town next to her home. He may have even been working there the very day Deirdre disappeared. But when police go to visit Larry in prison and question him about these women, he tells them that he doesn't know anything. Of course. 
Not only that, Larry turns out to be a near-perfect prisoner and is released from jail four years early. But in 2011, after he's released, police hear that Larry may have bragged about killing Deirdre to a fellow prisoner. And the way Larry allegedly describes his crime really checks out. He mentioned having a child's car seat in his car and toys scattered around to make it look like he was an innocent dad, and that he stopped Deirdre and asked her for directions. Then he supposedly pulled her into the car, forced her down to the floor of the passenger seat, and knocked her unconscious with a hammer. After that, he drove her to a remote location where he raped her and killed her. Now, Larry was drunk at the time of this confession, and the person he told this to is a convicted murderer. So it's not easy to know if this is actually true, but the police take it seriously enough to search Larry's car. But there's nothing. No forensic evidence at all. Larry has never been charged with Deirdre's murder or any of the women we discussed. As of October 2020, he was named a person of interest in the murder of Jojo Dullard. And his prison confession about Deirdre appears to be getting a serious review. So it's possible that he may be charged in the near future. And he's really the closest thing Operation Trace ever finds to a possible serial killer. By the end of 2001, after taking 4,000 statements and investigating 7,000 possible lines of inquiry, the team couldn't find any other links between the missing women. But that doesn't mean the investigators gave up. As I mentioned, the case of Jojo Dullard had two new leads emerge in 2021. And after a story on the Annie McCarrick disappearance came out in an Irish newspaper in the summer of 2020, a new eyewitness came forward. It's not clear exactly what they said, but police now believe they're close to naming a suspect in her murder. And yet, even with this newfound dedication to solving these murders, the violence in the Wicklow Mountains continues. In June of 2017, a man named Kieran Green killed and then dismembered his girlfriend's mother. Then he drove along a main road up in the mountains and scattered her body parts in nine different places. And in May of 2018, a young woman named Justine Valdez is abducted in broad daylight in Enniscary, the same town where Annie McCarrick was last seen. Justine was walking home from the bus when a married father of two named Mark Hennessy stopped, grabbed her, and put her in the trunk of his car. She was found strangled to death two days later. It's hard to make sense of it all. And maybe it's all just a coincidence. But the Wicklow Mountains and the area known as the Vanishing Triangle have definitely become synonymous with violent crime. Besides, it's hard not to see the immensely unsettling patterns. Women missing, the glaring lack of evidence, the lackluster ability to track down any leads. Whether or not they are linked by a single perpetrator or killer, they are inexorably tied together, not only by location, but by the painful reality that missing persons cases are often left unsolved. Whether or not there's more to the story, only time will tell.
Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. You can find all episodes of International Infamy and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Spotify has all your favorite music and podcasts all in one place. They're making it easier to listen to whatever you want to hear for free on your phone, computer, or smart speaker. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of International Infamy was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Drew Cole, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.